Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Hello and welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Um, my name is Chris Panaski. Obviously, we haven't got to the intro song yet, but if you are listening to this, um, things have been real busy in uh, in my life in the last week and a half or so. Uh, the weather was fantastic, but that kind of precluded me from getting out riding because I had a ton of stuff to do around uh, the house and um, was helping a friend with something and I just did not have a blink or a wink of time to actually get out and ride my bike like for a proper ride i did go out uh, ride out on the two saturdays past for the coffee outside which was great uh, we had a really nice get together um at the navy Memori- navy memorial i think there was 11 or 12 people there having coffee and brewing coffee and stuff a lot of the bike polo guys which was really cool to meet them and and uh, to get to know about this uh complete like side life on bikes which is you know i, I know of bike polo but I, I don't think i've ever met anybody that does bike polo until recently so that was really, really cool. And on top of that, I I was involved through Bike Pack Adventures, which is also me, with the Ride with GPS Cuddy Cap Challenge here in Ottawa as the as the partner. I kind of figured out where I would hide all the point the the caps and made clues and whatnot to go with it. And then I had to get out there the night before the event and hide everything. So that was the other time I rode my bike. But you know, it is life and sometimes you just don't get out as much as you would like to. I also went to Toronto last week to Brockton Cyclery, one of the sponsors of the podcast. We would we had arranged to do an intro to bikepacking night, and that's what you're going to listen to today. So uh, I was uh, talking with Glenn and Cameron, and we just talked bikepacking, like just from start to stop, you know, um, different things that might help people get into the sport if they're considering it, but they're not sure what to do or where to go or what they should buy or what they should not buy. I think we we had a pretty comprehensive talk, so hopefully you guys enjoy that. Also, it, the Bike Tour Adventures website is live for having a store. You can you know go on there, order shirts, hoodies, zip ups, caps, um, patches, and stickers are coming real soon. I've been meaning to do it. I've just been getting bogged down by everything else in my life, and I uh, I haven't even taken pictures. I just need to go and figure out how to put it onto that store. So working on that, um, and you can order off of Facebook, Instagram, and and the actual website biketouradventures.com yeah next up patreon if you like the podcast if you if you if you've been listening to this long term and you enjoy listening to these conversations and you think that it's worthwhile for me to continue to put all this effort into it i would truly appreciate your support as patreon supporters it's a small monthly amount that just you know kind of lets me know that this is what i can count on every month and so long as i keep producing quality content 
that that money will continue to come and those people are happy to support me. And, and that allows me to upgrade equipment like I just did recently with the Roadcaster Pro. So the Roadcaster Pro is not a cheap piece of equipment, but it's a podcasting interface, uh, mixer, everything all in one. And it has literally on my episode last week with LP Landry cut me down from what could typically be, let's say, a minimum of six between I'd say six and 10 hours of post podcast processing work to about an hour. Although it was expensive, I think it it really, really does just make everything a lot easier and allows me to to not stress on the post processing because that's the, the worst part of the whole thing, to be honest, and um, just keep making quality content. And that's what I'm here for. And I'm trying to have interesting interviews with bike packers, bike tours, endurance racers and you know keep a good variety of people coming on the show so if you've been enjoying it i want to thank you and on that note i want to thank daryl pierce my most recent patreon supporter he has just signed up he even sent me an email to tell me how much he likes to podcast and just to introduce himself so thank you daryl it's really really kind of you and um if patreon's not your thing i totally get it you can also contribute in other ways. I have a PayPal set up as well. There's a Bike Tour Adventures PayPal, and you can just make a one-time donation there. You can also write five-star Apple reviews or four-star or three-star, whatever you want. Um, fours and fives are definitely better through Apple Podcasts. You can share the podcast with your friends and family. And um, also, you can just send me an email. Let me know what you think about the podcast and share your own adventures and journeys with me. I love to hear these things and see what people are up to. So I do hope um, to hear back from you guys. Next up, Bike Pack Adventures, as I mentioned earlier, is my other website, and it's coming along really nicely. I haven't been adding really any routes recently. I've been so busy with a million other things, but the Grand Depart is happening July 3rd, leaving Chelsea, Quebec at 8 a.m. And as I mentioned many, many times in the past, there are three distances to choose from, so there's really an adventure for everyone, and these are the Canadian Shield 400, 1000, and 1300. For details, you can go to bikepackadventures.ca and check out the Grand Depart. And you can also see tons of other bikepacking routes in the region and pretty much plan out your entire summer. Um, another caveat on that is if you are using Ride with GPS, but you don't have a premium, premium membership through the Bikepack Adventures, you can join as a club member and any of the routes on that website, um, or sorry, on that ride page, um, you can actually use some of the premium features like spoken directions and stuff. So I forget what they call that, but yeah. Anyways, you can have, um, you know, verbal directions when you're riding and stuff, you can save and download and use it offline. There's some really cool functions that typically only premium members get, but by joining the club, you get them for free as long as it's a route that's on that site. So definitely check it out. And if for some reason a route has been updated and there's slight changes to it, I will try to go in every once in a while and just update the map that's on the uh, ride with GPS bike pack adventures page so that you have the most up-to-date one and then you get the the routes as well cool all right and I think that's it let's uh grill to the intro welcome to the bike tour adventures podcast I'm your host Chris Panaski this podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you will be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring and bike packing. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys, and through both mine and my guest experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. 
If you're new to bike touring or bikepacking and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. If you're already an experienced bike tourer or bikepacker, I hope that my guest stories allow you to relive some of your own experiences and give you a good laugh or two along the way. In the meantime, enjoy the show and keep on pedaling. Uh, welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. If you're first time ever listening and you happen to be here in audience in person, it's really cool to have you here. Uh, it's a small crowd tonight, but that's okay. Uh, we are live on Instagram. We are recording for some video that uh, Brockton Cyclery is going to do as well. And obviously the podcast. So uh, welcome, boys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you and, for having uh, us, Chris. Why don't you guys tell us about yourselves? So some of the crew here at Brockton. Uh, my name is Cam. I've been at Brockton since we opened in 2017. I've been working on bikes since 2010 and well, having a lot of fun. And we ride bikes and sleep outside in the dirt. Nice. My name's Glenn. I uh, have also been working at Brockton since the beginning. Um, yeah, working in bikes for six or seven years now. Um, like to like to ride my bike a lot, go camping. And a little bit of root development on the side. And yeah, and a little bit of root <coughs> development on the side. Nice. All right, so today we are doing an intro to bikepacking event or podcast. Um, as I think it's a really growing field. I mean, I think even for you guys, three, four years ago, it was probably really focused more on bike touring. And now you've seen like a massive shift, right? I assume. Uh, I think that, yeah, we've definitely seen an emphasis and a change in the industry there's way more off-road focused mm. bike touring equipment. And I think that we've actually seen a shift in the last two years where there's less, you know, hard right or left about bike touring and bike packing. And it's just kind of blended nicely where you're using a lot of the same gear. So we're seeing panniers being employed on off-road routes, like when Theo and Glenn went mm -hmm. up to Thunder Bay. Uh, I think it was the first time Theo had used panniers since he got into bike touring. And I think it's a really useful tool when it's needed. So I've seen and been happy about that shift towards off-road and then also kind of blending it. And we just kind of call it bike camping at this point. Right. I saw that in one of your posts. It was just bike camping. And it wasn't saying bike packing, but I was going to ask why the name yeah, I, I like to refer to it as, as bike camping versus touring or bike packing or whatever you want to call it. Because at the end of the day, I think that we're all really out there doing the same thing. Um, we're just going to ride our bikes and go sleep outside. And I think that really like breaking it down into bike packing versus bike touring versus whatever kind of builds in an unnecessary divide between mm -hmm. people who are all sort of doing the same thing. Yeah, I recently wrote a post and tried to like, try to even make my own mind around it. And it was really tough because like there's so much overlap so maybe bike camping is the uh, the new term we should all adopt yeah you heard it here first <laughs> call whatever you want <laughs> if you're on your bike and you're having fun you're sleeping outside like we're probably going to be friends yeah yeah so what is um i thought today we could kind of take it through the steps so like imagine brand new person saying hey i want to bike pack or bike camp what do i do and so i think first step would be a bike right what kind of bike makes the best bike Packing is what I wrote, but bike camping bike and maybe various scenarios you could describe where you might want a certain type of bike. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right off the bat, the answer is whatever bike you have. Sure. Um, go do your first bike packing trip on that. You don't need it to be anything special. Yeah. 
but as you start to get into it and start to develop um, what you like and uh, what kind of surfaces you want to ride on, I think that your next big consideration should be your tires. Um, how big of a tire you want to run, because that's going to be, I think one of the biggest things that will determine what routes you can do is, is do you have a big enough tire yeah. to, to deal with that? Yeah, like I wanted to do the AR700 last year, but with my gravel bike, it was just, I think I talked to somebody at West, or I might even talk to Theo, and he was like, oh no, dude, you'd kill yourself with 45 mil tires, you know, yeah. like it's, it's brutal. Underbiking is fun to a point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, I did touring in Asia with an old road bike, a, you know, seat post mounted rack and a little tiny dry bag attached, but it was more hotels and stuff. I wasn't really camping because of the limitations. Um, yeah. Anything else on that? Yes, no. Um, yeah. And whatever your first trip looks like, whether that is staying in hotels or having somebody support you on the ride in a car, if you're going on your bike covering a distance that you're excited about, that's that's bike touring. I don't. It doesn't need to be anything that you see someone else do it their way, and then you have to do exactly that. I think removing the definitions is really important because, again, if you're getting out and you're riding your bike, yeah, you're probably doing it right for you, and that's great. Yeah, and whether or not you're using warm showers or staying with friends, family. And honestly, those trips matter, right? sound wonderful after having a shower every many, day. Imagine, <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, like the idea of riding like the PCH down the coast of California mm. on a nice light bike that's not heavy, and you get to stay in a nice hotel every night. That sounds wonderful. So, if there's any sponsors out there, Cameron <laughs> is looking for a sugar daddy. That's yes, <laughs> I'll put all of the logos on my jersey. <laughs> um, where was I? I have no idea. <laughs> what kind of bikes do you guys use and what have you used in the past? How, has, how have things changed for you as you've gone and the adventure continues? Oops. Yeah, so I guess my first um, true bike camping bike that I built up um, was my second year working at the shop. I, I built a Surly Krampus and that's honestly served me really well um, over the years. I've, I've had no complaints about it. It's a huge 29 by three inch tire. Oh. Uh, rigid rigid geometry with um, nice big swept back bars. I find that that lets me ride my bike a long time and be, and be comfortable. Um, and then as I got more and more into it, uh, I started doing that whole gravel bike thing and then gravel bike tires just kept getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And there's definitely a little bit of overlap between a gravel bike and like a mountain bike um, mm -hmm. at this point. But. Well, especially if you look at like the um, Curve GMX Plus, it's got it's a, it's a gravel bike for all sense purposes, but it's also kind of a mountain bike. Cause, exactly. But it uses drop bars, and it's, you know, it's a beast. Yeah, and that's what I'm building up as the, the next one to replace the Krampus, finally. Bit um, into why I'm replacing it later. Okay, Cameron. Um, so currently, I've just finished building my Curve GMX Plus, which seems to be the trend at Brockton. Yeah. Theo being the early adopter. Uh, the godfather. Yeah, he... he <laughs> He walked so that we could all run, as he has reminded us, which I think is great. Uh, Curve makes a really great bike, and I think it's very unique, which is why Theo, who did all of his research, uh, ended up picking it. Um, more on that later, but that's what I'm riding this season. I'll be setting it up with a big swept back bar, but I'm also very curious to set it up with a drop bar after having ridden Theo's bike. Yeah, it's a neat thing about the bike is you can have those two options, right? Yeah. Um, but I started on a 90s Haro bike that fit me very poorly 
and has now become one of my favorite bikes because I actually use a crust Clydesdale cargo fork for it. And I've been on a couple camping trips, more like rail trail, kind of gravel, tame things. But uh, Glenn and I both have those forks and think it's one of the best cycling products out there. Uh, what fork is that again? That's uh, the, uh, the crust Clydesdale cargo fork. Best way to convert your old gravel bike or 90s mountain bike into uh, a light-duty cargo bike. Okay, interesting. Um, so I guess that takes us to the next thing is, you know, once you do have a bike chosen, um, before you can just kind of get out there, I think there's a little bit of preparation to do in terms of maybe physical preparation. I mean, you're not going to say, I'm going to go, well, maybe most people wouldn't go and race the Butter Tart 700 or even ride it without having ever bike packed or been out overnight. Um, how can people prepare physically? What kind of things can they do? Um, I think that everyone comes at it from a different level of like fitness. I think that you should bite off a reasonable amount to start and whatever that looks like for you. But you should try riding a loaded bike before you're on your first overnight trip, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that a loaded bike feels very different. And if you're going to tackle a route you're not familiar with for the first time on a loaded bike, I think that that might be too many firsts. Yeah, too big a bite, huh? Yeah, I think that ride around a, a familiar route on what your loaded setup is, and we'll call that a shakedown ride. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really first, a really good first experience to get you started, to build confidence so that, you know, you've figured out that you need to strap that bag a little bit tighter to your handlebar. Or that you're missing a piece of kit or... Yeah. 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 I think if you just jump into it and you go and you know, you can ride a road bike for 100K and you set yourself and you say, I'm going to do 100K days with a fully loaded bike and in unknown territory which could be rougher than expected like you might just walk away hating the adventure and saying i'm never doing this again and that's not what you want you want to make something pleasant out of it and uh, so i think like biking endurance building up your endurance get out biking more kind of build up that cardiovascular um and like you said take your time right and take it easy i think like you know, even if you, whether you're very new to cycling and bike camping and whatever, or you're like a super experienced road rider um, and you regularly do big days, like make your first bike camping trip really easy. Um, set yourself up to succeed. I, I don't see really the benefit in, in trying to do something super challenging when you've never done it before. Mm -hmm. you're, going, you're going to run into things that yeah. you didn't expect to happen. And it's better to have that time in the day uh, and know that there's really no stresses that you, yeah. you're putting on yourself that you don't need to. What about bike fit? How important is it? And at what point should you say, I'm going to invest this money into getting a bike fit? Um, we talk about bike fit at the shop all the time. Uh, the first thing that I will say is I have gone through a formal bike fit experience and it was very helpful. I was fitting my first mountain bike and I was setting up clipless pedals um, in brand new shoes after a very bad injury. So okay. it was part rehab and trying to make sure this bike felt safe, basically. Um, fit is a very biased thing so everybody's body is different everybody has different levels of flexibility and physicality I was rehabbing an injury so there's asymmetry in my body um, and we have clients that come in and they have different goals so if you go to a road shop you're going to get a road fit right so I think that if you know that when you're talking to somebody and they have their biases they can highlight them and make them known to you and they can say, this is what worked for me. Yeah. And you can weigh whether or not they are going to be helpful to you. Um, Glenn and I have, I think, 
changed from going from track bikes where you're in a very aggressive <laughs> forward position diving through traffic to a very upright almost like a beach cruiser and i think that we both like those two positions and our bodies probably body certainly like it better <laughs> yeah i don't think our bodies respond to those aggressive positions anymore yeah. um and i don't think either of us are would consider ourselves old but you know we threw ourselves down sets of stairs when we were younger and uh skateboarding bmx etc yeah. uh, and so there's consequences to that and we have to be aware yeah. of that if we want to keep riding day after day yeah yeah i think the biggest thing with with bike fit like like what cam said is do your research on your fitter um, I went to a very road-specific shop and I got my fit done and it felt like I didn't get what I need, which is not to say that they're not good at fitting bikes. It's just that we were looking for different things. They're trying to get me on very narrow bars and uh, locked into clipless pedals. And I was like, no, my handlebars are going to be 55 centimeters wide. Uh, I'm going to use flat pedals. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that it's in the bike camping, bike touring um, scene. There's a real big need for for fitters um, who have that experience, who do that, and know how to fit people for bike camping, um, and what it's like to be on a bike for say 18 hours a day. If you're if you're into that whole endurance racing, to be on a bike for 18 hours a day, day after day mm -hmm. after day, <coughs> yeah, sleeping I, in the dirt. I used a bike fitter last year. I think it was yeah, about a year ago, uh, on my gravel bike, and. I basically found it through some of the Ottawa, I'm from Ottawa, by the way, but I'm cheering for the Leafs, so I hope they're winning right now. Um, but anyways, I, uh, sorry, Ottawa people, Montreal people. Um, <clears throat> but anyways, I, I just looked through some Facebook groups and just kind of saw what, who people were recommending and, and also learned a really cool tip was you can, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have insurance that covers physio and chiro and things, that can be covered under your bike fit if you find the right bike fitter. So... I have a guy who's a physiotherapist and I think I, I paid 50 bucks out of my pocket and the rest was covered by insurance and that is ace, I'm a teacher, so uh, that was so good, you know, just because it's expensive, it's not cheap. So I think it's also maybe something you don't need right away when you're getting into the sport, but you want to wait a little bit until you're, you're thinking, all right, I'm really serious about this, I want to push bigger days, but I'm hurting, I'm, I'm, my knees are feeling it or my, my lower back or my, my wrists or wherever, so maybe then it's time for getting that extra investment into a bike fit. I agree. And I think that a fit is ongoing. So as you become more fit and you get used to your bike, so if you're coming off of a winter where you didn't ride versus when you finish your season, your body is longer and you generally actually get to interact with your bike very differently if you are coming off of a, like a winter. But yeah, I think that it's an ongoing thing. So when customers ask, do you have a fit that I can pay for i said well we don't really do that we don't really have the tools for one but we will get you within 90 percent of what i think you would pay a few hundred dollars for and that's part of buying a bike through brockton is come back let me know what that 40 minute ride felt like let me know what that 100 kilometer ride felt like did you have knee pain where was it mm -hmm. maybe we should try something where we adjust your seat it's just so many things, yeah. and I think it's just so ongoing. And as well, if you have like experienced cyclist friends, you can always just go to them. They're, they're going to have ideas and tricks and tricks at work. I was yeah. really interested. Like it was really interesting when I went to my bike fit. He was checking my cleats, and he was like, "I've never seen anybody that has both cleats within half a millimeter of where they should be." He's like, "You've never had a fit before?" I was like, "No." He's like, "You've adjust." I, I say, I "Adjust all the time." As soon as I feel like something's quite a little bit out, I make an adjustment, and I, now this is a comfortable position. And, 
but it had a shorter leg, so he put a riser, and that made a huge difference. There so, you go, the asymmetry. Um, yeah. Um, how important is upper body and core to, to good cycling experience, in your estimation? Uh, definitely pretty, pretty key, and I think it's pretty easy to neglect that. But yeah, bike camping—you're you're on and off the bike. You're moving the whole bike around. You're you're working with a loaded bike. Um, it's definitely not just a legs game. Yeah, yeah, definitely feeling the shoulders and yeah. wrists. And, um, what about mental preparation? Um, and I guess this could go to like—it applies to everybody. Like to me, it really re- re- uh, like I, I feel like a strong connection to a quote I'm going to read. Um, because I, I like to bike pack race in the, in the in the way if Theo does, you know, I like to push my limits, and and definitely it applies there. But I think it applies to everybody um, who's getting into bike packing because you're going to push your limits whether you're going for 800 kilometers or for 100. And and that quote is by David Goggins. Have you guys ever heard of this guy? No. No, ex Navy SEAL, and he says that feeling you've uh, that feeling that you've completely tapped out actually comes when you're only 40 percent done. You still have 60 percent left in the tank. So. It's, it's really a mental game, right? Like, you, you think I'm sore, I'm, I'm hurting, but you're really not over, you know? Um, so I think that's an important takeaway as well when you're, when you're getting into bikepacking. And just because you're getting out there and you think, ah, oh, I don't know if I can go any further, I want to go home. Stop, have a sleep, see how you feel the next day. Yeah, I, I definitely think that um, that's something that we all surprise ourselves on bike tours and keep nudging that marker further, whether it's on like a race or, um, you know, just a ride that we, you know, is a little bit more challenging than we expected, but then we complete it all the same. Um, yeah. And on your note about racing, it's, you're not just like competing against yourself. You've introduced this other factor that you can't predict. So somebody like yourself or Theo shows up, somebody that might have thought they were in contention to win the race, all of a sudden has to play that mental game with, oh, well, Chris is really fast today, and he's looking like he's really fresh, and I feel completely destroyed, where you could both be at that 40% mark, and you just aren't showing it on your face, and that's a whole other added dimension of racing that is really fun to think about, but not always fun for (laughs) any experience. (laughs) This is why I don't race. I just toodle through the bush. I actually, I, I, I had a... <laughs> stopping eating cheese and crackers whenever I want to. I did a podcast with a guy yesterday, um, LP Landry of Overcome Cafe, and we talked just about, you know, mindfulness, how to maintain positive mindset, um, how to overcome the fears of... And, and as we talked, like, he was like, what are your fears? And I was like, I don't think I have any. And I was like, oh, wait a second, dogs. <laughs> Fucking dogs. <laughs> I was like, man, I remember like middle of the night, I just heard the biggest dog ever barking and chasing. And next thing you know, I'm going 45 kilometers an hour. I'm burned out. Adrenaline's kicked in. And, and, um, and maybe 20 minutes later, I think, I'm like, I think I lost him. But, I mean, I lost that dog way, way back there. But I didn't stop, you know. It was like, <laughs> worse than a bear. Uh, <laughs> dogs hit different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, them farm dogs, right? Um, so let's jump forward. Gear and packing. Yeah. We could maybe bring this. going to sink a bit because that thing's uh, that microphone has a talking about vicious dogs that's right all right so let's talk about gear and packing because i think that's kind of the next step you got your bike you you've been out biking you've built up a bit of endurance you're starting to get your mental game going and as you mentioned try to do some shakedown runs or rides 
where you have your gear. What is your bikepacking setup like? And you know, you mentioned Theo going with a with a Glen up to the north and using panniers and um, yeah, tell us about it. Yeah, I think that um, you probably boil down different bikepacking uh, setups into sort of three main categories. You've got classic panniers, um, then you've got your sort of big trunk style bags, those like British uh, long flap uh, style, and then the sort of newer, um, lots of small bags, frame bags, and, and little little seat packs and mm -hmm. bar rolls and everything like that. Um, I think that for folks who are just getting into it or are wondering, you know, maybe this is something I want to do, maybe not, going with fewer quantity of bigger bags, like doing panniers, makes a lot of sense um, because you've got that, that large volume and you can probably use some of the gear you already have if you go hiking, for, for example, or car camping. You can throw those, those things into panniers. They're, they're going to take up a little more room. Um, but with those small bike packing bags, uh, you often have to go with the ultralight, which ends up mm -hmm. being ultra expensive uh, gear, um, to fit it into those smaller bags. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Cameron? Um, so yeah, I think that I agree with everything Glenn just said. Uh, to his point about panniers, you probably know someone that has panniers you can borrow for the weekend. Yeah. And there's probably a sleeping bag at your parents' house, and there's probably a tent you can borrow from another friend. So get out and try these different things. I've read people on Instagram or Facebook or Reddit talking about like, oh, hammock, it's light, it's the it. only way to go. And then some people are like, yeah, I bought a $300 top-end hammock and I hated it. Yeah. So you should probably borrow some gear and decide what you like without spending money where you can. There's a point at which like, you know, if I keep lending my gear out to someone, I'll be like, you should probably just buy your own equipment at this point. But I'm always happy to get someone started and lend out a mm -hmm. product. Um, we have some customers that have become my friends and I'm happy to lend gear to those people. Um, cool, man. Because I need to borrow a... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Chris, you're my friend now. You can yeah. borrow my stuff. Um, yeah, actually, on, on the hammock note, I went and spent money on a on a hammock when I was living in Malaysia. I did a tour in Indonesia. I used it two nights. I'm a stomach sleeper. It's the worst thing ever. You can't get comfortable on your back. <laughs> and I tried using it once here in Canada last year, and I was like, I just got to get rid of this thing. It's just, it's just taking up space. You know, it's just, I don't like it. But now my wife wants to use it for camping. Uh, anyways, different story. She's listening. I love you, baby. <laughs> yeah, um, I think the... The biggest thing is like, like Cam said, ask your friends, um, ask, ask your online community. You'd be surprised how willing some people are yeah. to lend you equipment. One of my favorite things was, I think it was summer 2020. Um, a lot of the staff at Brockton started getting into bike camping more, but didn't necessarily have all the gear. Um, so we kind of just, a lot of us stored our camping setups at the shop and then it was like oh you need a bivy here you go take mine oh you need my gps oh, cool. great go for it um and it was awesome to yeah to sort of remove some of those barriers because at the end it's of the day like, it's so expensive <laughs> so to expensive. get out um, a bike packing and the, the same could be said with things like seat posts like you guys sell suspension seat posts the thud busters here i use redshift but you know people don't want to necessarily go spend that money without trying one first so I recently mm -hmm. lent a, I have a dual position seat post for aero bars and a buddy of mine was saying, I don't know, I don't like aero bars because I feel too stretched. I said, I'll lend you my seat post, try it out for a month or two, you know? 
let me know how you like it. You're a great ambassador for that product. Yeah, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, it's been really good though. So, but I mean, I got the stuff and I, I'd feel I'm taking advantage of relationship. And I'm like, I can't lend you this. They gave it to me. <laughs> you know, it's my precious. And that's um, one of the things about bikepacking and this whole community. I've been part of lots of communities, very niche. And this is the friendliest by far. Yeah. And everyone wants to share. Everyone is going to tell you this is the best way to do that and sometimes it's very in some cases like very mansplaining and that's one of the things we hear as feedback um, as, as men that work in this industry um, but generally everyone wants to share like oh was this route passable on these tires in this month I was reading up about the Baja divide which is oh, a goal I want to go ride that too yeah and there's lots of people that are like oh I rode it from La Paz to Cabo and it was great it was a little bit dicey north of that or something. And everyone wants to share. So ask and leverage your community. Awesome. Um, on the bags thing, last thing before we go on, um, if somebody was looking to buy just one or two bags, they had a bit of money and they're like, okay, I can afford, let's say two bags. What, are, what would be your two bags you recommend? Uh, I point a lot of folks to the long flap style bags. I know Swift Industries makes their Zeitgeist. Um, there's a few other folks, Caradice being one of the originals. Um, that make Long those, flat meaning the top peg with the sides? Is exactly, that, yeah. that like big trunk, um, sort of one big bag. Some of them have side okay. pockets and they generally have a cinch top or a roll top and then a flap that goes over. Oh, okay. Because you can just dump stuff in there. Mm -hmm. um, those bar rolls are great, but I don't like pulling all of my stuff oh, out yeah. of it to get whatever's in the middle, you know? Yeah. I think that those are fantastic. And then a second bag that I would say is uh, get yourself a, f a set of feed bags um, mm. to put up near your bar stem area. Because having a water bottle or your phone, a tool, mm -hmm. camera, whatever, having that up in, in reach while you're rolling, while you're moving is, is pretty great. Cool. Cameron? Uh, I've got a lot of the same things to say. On the note Stop of- Stop copying them. <laughs> well, we hang out a lot. Yeah. Uh, on that note though, when we've been on trip together, I was using more bikepacking style bags. Okay. And I saw how easily Glenn, who right. has many years of experience on me in terms of camping, but setting up and tearing down camp, he was done and packed so much faster with the flap style bag where I'm stuffing things into this sausage roll. Counting on it. Yeah, and, and just honestly, I saw how easy it was for him. He had more capacity. It was simpler. Mm -hmm. And I come from the bike messenger world where everything has its place. And I wasn't able to get at things in that role as easily where Glenn can just, while standing over his bike, pull the flap back, access what he was looking for, and keep rolling. And I think that that note about stem bags, I bought stem bags years ago and it's the only bag that I still own and have never had to replace. It's, uh, I've replaced almost every other bag and gone with something slightly different yeah. or completely different. But I also bought one of the Swift Industry Zeitgeists. Um, I bought it as a stopgap because I wanted a custom bag from a maker that was very backlogged. And I used it so much last year. I actually used it almost every single week to go to coffee outside on every bike that I own. Um, and I've kept it even though I've got the custom bag that I did want. Okay, cool. Just remember if you use big bags and you don't fill all the volume yourself, your friends will fill it for you. <laughs> that is very accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of a frame bag. Like now that you gone, I've gone frame bag, it's just something I, I don't think it's going to always dip. I don't know why that one just kind of uh, but yeah, frame bag. I, I just love a full-size frame bag and just the stuff you can get in there and kind of keeps the weight low. But 
in terms of second bag, I'd probably have to go with that feed bags. Yeah, yeah I, awesome. I agree with the frame bag. Like once you get one, you don't uninstall it. You just leave it there yeah. and it's always a place for your tools, that spare layer yeah. and your bike handles properly. So there's a lot of merits to that. Yeah. I agree. This year I'm going with third. a partial frame and try that out and see how nice. it goes. And uh, Water below? Uh, water below. Yeah. Nice. And I might even put like a wolf tooth, like three bottles below. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so we talked about that, your packing system. What kind of, I guess, lessons have we learned? You said you learned a lesson from him about packing when you're camping together. Um, how did you get to this conclusion of like, hey, big bags? Um, yeah, so I, I actually come from a whitewater canoeing background. Um, so we, we use um, these big 60 liter plastic barrels mm -hmm. to put all of our stuff in because they're mostly waterproof. Um, but yeah, you just end up with this big cavernous space that you fill with all of your stuff. So I kind of transferred that over to, um, to bike camping. I'm like, okay, I want a big volume bag that I can just put all my little things mm. in within that big, big bag. Makes sense. All right, and obviously resupply, how does that affect everything? I think you and Theo have a, a good experience in the north of Thunder, your Thunder Bay trip. Um, you know, had to manage resupply in a much different way than most people would because... Oh, we didn't have to manage resupply. There yeah, was no reason. <laughs> Talk to Tell us about it. Um, so, yeah, that's where, again, big bags come into, come into play there because we were carrying between the two of us uh, nine, really ten days of food because we had, we, we had an emergency day's worth of food on that tour. Um, so we needed to just... We spent time uh, leading up to the tour figuring out exactly what we were going to eat, when we were going to eat it, um, and really rationing everything out uh, and then had to pack all that onto onto bikes smart to move um, yeah we had to load all that stuff onto our bikes. so I would say I filled um, one of my bags which is probably about 27 or so liters that was almost entirely food oh wow okay uh, what about you Cameron how do you work with resupply when you're planning a route or you're looking at a route um, I generally have the advice to share about resupply and bags you shouldn't leave full so you should have room for all of the layers so you're assuming like i'm gonna overheat and i should be able to fit that rain jacket that puffy jacket whatever you're bringing as many as, as naked as you get basically on your bike you should be able to fit all of those extra layers on your bike uh. you should probably have another 20 percent before you're full so the Snickers bar you pick up at the gas station, that extra liter that you didn't think you needed and you need to just buy a liter of water, that's, that's a reasonable amount of space that you should be accounting for. So I've actually upped my capacity enormously for this season. Okay. Um, we're gonna be leading trips and guiding, so we have like, we're gonna have to carry a lot, lot more because we're gonna be hauling camp equipment for cooking and all of the mm -hmm. kitchen supplies. Um, and then extra water and first aid and all of the things that come along with being a guide. But when I'm out by myself, my capacity's doubled in the last two years. Okay. Um, how many bottles of water do you carry, like, typically on your bikes? I mean, I know we can resupply by filtering and stuff. Yeah, I think that largely depends on where you are. Um, in Ontario, we've got so much fresh water um, all around maybe a little ways outside of the city. Not so um, much in the south, right? Like yeah, not so much in the south, but uh, um, I would carry probably two Nalgene, so two liters and a, and a squeeze bottle, so call it just shy of three liters. Uh, but then when I was in Arizona doing some touring, we were dry camping almost every night. 
Uh, dry camping, for those who don't know, is when you don't have a water source near your campsite. Um, and so we had to consider, you know, we were going to not have water at the campsite, and then we didn't know when our next water was going to be. We, we would usually find water each day, but we didn't know if it would be, you know, 10 kilometers down the road right. or 50 kilometers down the road. So we were, we were bringing, um, like, bladders, like dromedary bags to carry an extra six liters of water that we'd try and fill up at what we thought would be our last resupply point of the day. Okay. Um, we'd, we'd fill that up and slog an extra six kilos of water to camp with us. And was there a lot of extra, like, re research going into the maps and stuff to see where you'd have your points? Uh, yeah, there was definitely a lot of research in that area. You know, myself, nor my riding partner, were familiar with Arizona. Um, so we had seen a lot of, uh, like, seasonal uh, waterways that we marked on the map, and we're like, there might be water here. Right. And then we just started laughing every time the GPS would, would cue us, saying, like, possible river, because we knew it was just going to be a sandy riverbed um, that had no water in mm. sight. Uh, so we made sure to be filling up uh, if we stopped at a at a restaurant or a pub, whenever we would ask them to fill all our bottles. Okay, Cameron. Yeah, uh, Glenn has taught me a lot about that, and that's why I now carry a filter, especially in Ontario. I haven't had the opportunity to tour outside of like the northeast of North America, um, but I have aspirations of going to the desert, as I mentioned. So. I'll be consulting Glenn and yeah. uh, that extra capacity is going to be allocated to water in a lot of cases. But yeah, it, it totally depends. Um, I can go without water probably longer than some people can, not for good reasons, just because I'm generally a dehydrated person that <laughs> doesn't take care of themselves yeah. as well as I should. Um, but I'll always have two bottles and then probably a full extra liter. So probably in and around two and a bit okay. liters. Um, but I've now learned more often than not, I end up buying something at a gas station, whether it's a Gatorade or an extra bottle, and that ends up getting close to that three liters. Yeah, I typically carry two bottles and like a, a platypus that I can just kind of fill up if I know I'm going, even if it's like late at night. So like, I know that it's gonna be hard to find water at night. I mean, you can hear water rush, rushing off in the woods and you're like, do you really wanna walk down there at two in the morning? Better off just having an extra liter of water. You can manage through until morning especially if you're riding non-stop and eating chewing on caffeine pills um <laughs> so i know the longest you guys have gone without resupplying is like 10 days huh? nine ten days yeah that's, that's crazy um so when you're in the desert and I, I guess this doesn't apply so much to people entering into bikepacking here but maybe some listeners out there does your food management have a lot to do with the water too? Like if you're dry camping, you're now thinking like what foods don't need water to cook? Is yeah, that? Absolutely. Um, like when we were in Northern Ontario, we were doing a lot of the um, dehydrated meals because water was plentiful. We weren't having to carry all that much and we could use, you know, two liters of water at dinner to make our meals. But when we went, uh, when we were in the desert, um, we, we just knew that water wasn't as plentiful. So we were definitely considering, you know, what can we cook um, efficiently? Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it should even out everything after. Um, awesome. How about you, food-wise? Um, what's been your, your go-to? Like, how long are your trips? And Yeah, I mean, I've had lots of trips where I've relied on um, a stop at a grocery store. So whether that's something as simple as buying some sausages and 
maybe adding to like a dehydrated meal and making it feel a little less uh, like it came from a bag. Yeah. Um, but dehydrated meals are really great. And that's one less thing that you're having to plan for. If you just need to find water, you already needed to do that. And you're finding an extra seven or 800 milliliters to work with to cook a basic meal you're already having to process so much information through a day of touring. One less thing to think about, you know, I eat lots of very beautiful dinners with my girlfriend. Bike camping it might not be my best meal of the week or even yeah. the month, but you know, it's, I, I made it through and it's really tasty after a long day. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that I'm still getting to know what I wanna do when I get creative and maybe bring some own, my own supplies. Um, Theo was out on the West Coast and I saw that he used a lot of pasta um, I like pasta. I should be doing that. I'm so lazy. Like, <laughs> I mean, when I when I do like normal touring, it's not even normal. I still go really far in a day. But I just create the worst. Like ramen, instant noodles with a can of tuna dumped in it, and it's just after three four days, it's just nasty. <laughs> it's like I'm so tired of this. Craft dinner, little ones, you know, like oh, just crap. <laughs> yeah, I like to I like to work it into my to my touring plans. You know, I like to eat really well yeah. on bike camping trips, and that was the hardest thing going from canoeing, where we're bringing like uh, I would lead students on like a month long trip, and we'd have nine sixty liter barrels, and even a month into a camping trip, I had fresh produce. Oh wow! That I was that I was still like cooking up with fresh veggies. And that was, that was the hardest thing, transitioning to bike camping, where like size and weight mm -hmm. um, are big considerations in your food. But I like to plan that into my, into my tours. If I know that I can dip into a town, grab some, grab some fresh food, and you know, be done my day, like be off my bike by 4.30, 5 o'clock on a, on a recreational tour, I can sit down at my campsite. And take some time, yeah. Take some time, make myself a nice meal. That really replenishes me for the next day. Good call. Yeah, there's um there's a there's a bike tour I follow. His name's Sam Rice. So he was on the podcast uh, two years ago more maybe. Um, he does amazing things with food. Like I see the posts that he's making. He's putting menus on his site and stuff like recipes, really good stuff. And I was like, man, not complicated, but way more effort than I would put. But uh, yeah, I mean, legit food, right up, straight up, good meals and yeah crazy it's all about you what can you do, value yeah you can you can take just a little bit more time and make something nice yeah as you kind of noted like it's a pretty consistent theme from other people i've spoken with you have to consume more calories you're doing so much more work than you're used to palate fatigue is what that's called so if you know you get sick of eating something like you need to go into the gas station and like fill your craving i end up craving miss vicky's salt and vinegar chips oh, nice. i don't need it any other time that's when I have it is on a bike tour. That's what I want. Like Sour Patch Kids, Jujubes, Twizzlers, all that junk. Yeah. yeah. Just stuff my You need face. calories. So Except junky sponsorships food. for Haribo Sour Gummy Bears. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's talk about some, uh, some of the other things that people might want to consider when they're getting into bikepacking or bike camping and adventuring of that sort. Um, navigation and communication. What, what kind of tools can you recommend or what have you used? Um, so I think that a lot of people see a $500 GPS behind our counter, and I think that they work very, very well. I've used the Wahoo uh, Roam. It was a great computer uh, for someone that wants to see their data mm -hmm. as well as get turn-by-turn -turn navigation. The interface is really great to use, but 
the best first step is get a ride with GPS account. Yep. You will probably already have a smartphone. You're gonna be bringing it anyways. Get maybe a handlebar mount for said phone uh, and start there. Yeah. You should learn to plan your rides and know the route from that file that you're gonna be using. Um, that was something that I only started using a lot the last three or four years. I was using Google Maps. Yeah. And yep. I think that's where a lot of us started. Um, and that Intel is great. And I usually cross-reference between multiple different um, apps or programs um, to build a route and, and know it really well. Glenn is a wealth of knowledge on that. And he prioritizes safety. So having good Intel puts you in situations that are safe. And that's a huge part of being on a bike tour and being success successful. Um, so yeah, I think that you should have really good intel going out there. And sometimes you do have to wing certain situations and yeah. be adaptable. Sometimes there's a bridge that's closed and you have to reroute around it. And you should know what your options are. And you should maybe know that, oh, it's spring, so the water is gonna be high and this municipality doesn't really repair infrastructure as quickly as we would in Toronto. So my expectations should be adjusted. Um, so for navigation, I think that you should know your route really well before you leave. Yeah, I think as, as Cam's saying, the the number one thing is, yeah, use your phone. You probably already have a smartphone. Download download those maps. And as you get more experience with it, you're going to start drawing from more and more different sources. Like, I'll find myself at 3 o'clock in the morning looking at maps and, like, land use agreements and, and on yeah. the, the Crown Land Atlas. But that's really deep dive like nerdy yeah, I stuff do that. um <laughs> that's when you get into your your whole route building thing and figuring out where you can legally sleep outside yeah, i never sleep that long so i'm like <laughs> park bench under a swing doesn't matter a slide it's okay there's no kids around they're all sleeping um i just sleep anywhere anytime like knock on yeah. somebody's door can i put my bivy bag in your yard and they're like okay that's weird but sure like I'll be gone before you wake up. Yeah. <laughs> um, on that note, like we're talking about planning our own rides, yeah. but we exist in a time where so many people have submitted really, really good vetted routes yeah. that are safe and you can just plug and play and go. Mm -hmm. So bikepacking.com here in Ontario, we have Matt Katie as a resource. He's put together some of the best routes that I've had the privilege of riding. Yeah, his routes are great. So the Buttertart 700, yeah. uh, bt700.ca. And then there's other routes that he's added that are great for a beginner. Mm -hmm. We recommend the GNR, the Grand Nith Ramble, which is the extension of the bt Yeah, I think it's 350, 350 kilometers. Yeah. And it's the best first bike packing trip you can go on. Yeah, and I'm going to self-plug here. So my other website is bikepackadventures.ca. And I mean, a lot of those routes are on the site as well as many others. I think Ontario and Quebec, I have like, maybe 40 routes, maybe Perfect. more. And because Ride with GPS actually gave me a, a tourist account, you can join as a, I don't know, I'm not 100% sure, but I think I can put a link in the podcast show notes um, for the club membership, whatever that means. You can join the club, not that there's many people, but um, you get all the turn-by-turn -turn navigation for free on any of the routes that, you down, that you're following that are on bikepackadventures.ca, so or the Bikepackadventures Ride website whatever page um so you get all the the benefits of a premium membership without having to have it just because you're joined as a club member which is cool like perfect yeah that's great i would say one other thing on navigation is uh paper maps are pretty great i know <laughs> yeah. i know that that's those? a foreign uh, yeah it's a foreign thing to some people but paper maps don't run out of batteries 
you can get waterproof ones uh, and they're really good for just laying out on the ground and looking at uh, where you need to go. If you come to an impasse in the road, it's a lot easier to have that view of the whole area um, and be like, okay, if we go back, there's this road that goes around. If you've ever tried to use, uh, phones aren't as bad, but a GPS and trying to like move that little joystick around on your two inch by inch and a half screen, Oh, that is an infuriating experience when you already know that things aren't going to plan. My phone died last week while I was on a section of single track and it was super windy. And there I was on my Garmin pushing up, 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 button, over, 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 yeah. button, zoom in. No, zoom out. Oh shit, it doesn't, I could. I. And how great does that feel? <laughs> it took me like 30 minutes to get out and I finally found a, an old double track road and I jumped on it and I was on the main road and I was like, oh, so pissed. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. Carry a power bank, always. Um, spot trackers, things like that. Do you guys have them? Yep. Before continuing on with the show, I'd like to thank Panorama Cycles for sponsoring this podcast. Panorama Cycles is a bicycle manufacturer in Quebec, Canada, dedicated to backcountry cyclists that prefer gravel, snow, and off-road trails. They believe cycling is a catalyst for adventures of all sizes, and that there's no need to travel across the world or to be a seasoned athlete to live epic outdoor adventures. Over the past year, I've been riding the Chick Shocks fat bike, the Katadin gravel bike, and the Taiga mountain bike. From everyday rides, bikepacking trips, and a multitude of races and events, these bikes have put a huge smile on my face every step of the way, while also getting me on the podium on the Wendigo Ultra fat bike race and helped me set an FKT on the Canadian Shield 400. In partnering up with the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, Panorama Cycles also wants to give back to the cycling community, particularly you, the listeners of the podcast. By using the promo code BPA10 when purchasing a new bike from PanoramaCycles.com, you'll save 10%. For more information on their environmental commitments or to check out their bikes, head to PanoramaCycles.com. Now back to the show. Uh, I've had the benefit of being on trip with Glenn and he's had one oh, for, for the both of us. Um, we've lent one around between staff. Um, but if you know you're going to have cell phone reception, I don't think it is totally necessary. But there's lots of situations where your cell phone isn't going to work and you should do that research to figure that out. Yeah. And people are going to be quick to let you know if there's a route that is vetted and that's going to be a factor that you encounter. So, yeah. And I'd say download, like get downloadable maps or carry paper maps in that case. Um, I only got a spot this year and I bought one used from somebody for 75 bucks because I didn't really want to spend all the money of a, a you know an inReach or even the spot gen 4 it was you know i was like ah oh, i could get one for 75 bucks it's good enough um but i never had one till now but there's been plenty of times where i'm outside of communication for four or five days and you know my poor wife is at home wondering is he alive has he gotten eaten by a bear on the cassiar highway like what's going on and so it would have been beneficial to have one earlier yeah. but not necessary like not absolutely necessary but not not a bad investment and it depends on where you live, like, right? Like in, in Southern Ontario, Toronto, like we, we basically are going to have cell service always, yeah. um, whether you like it or not. But <laughs> um, when I was living up in Thunder Bay, very quickly, and it's gotten better in the last couple of years, but very quickly you leave town and your cell phone coverage drops. Um, so having that uh, spot or in-reach uh, device with you can save you on just even a day ride or somebody else like you never know if you're going to run across some other recreationist who needs your help and it's always good to be prepared you might not necessarily know how to deal with that situation but by giving yourself the tools to call for help um you could be really helping somebody yeah. out yeah i live in chelsea quebec so right on the gatineau park just the edge of it 
and there's a trail like a kilometer from my house and if i go halfway around that five kilometer loop i'm out of cell signal and i was like seriously this is like how much closer can you be to ottawa you know like it's stone's throw it's crazy but it's useful to have uh, something um let's talk about toolkits first aid things like that um you guys are mechanics so you claim uh what kind of stuff do you carry for tools and parts i guess uh so i'll carry a very comprehensive multi-tool that has like a chain breaker and an eight millimeter allen key but i'll also carry a very basic park tool one in addition to that that has longer Allen keys oh, those that are, are so a little nice. easier to use. And I'll keep that for like the quick adjustments where I'll have my more comprehensive one buried with more of my spares. Mm-hmm. Um, we both run tubeless tires. So there's going to be a Dyna plug, spare plugs, sealant, tubes. Um, I use one of the wolf tooth pack pliers. So if I ever needed to splice a chain together, I have extra quick links. It's a really sturdy uh, tire lever in addition to the two other tire levers that I carry. Um, in four years, I've never had to use my Dyna plug. Uh, I don't ride as much as some people, but I think that's still notable having been out on trips every year. Mm-hmm. Um, so good quality, well-maintained gear before you leave prevents a lot of the mechanicals that you might encounter. So I think that's just as notable, but um, I'll leave first aid Completely up to Glenn because my first aid is pretty, pretty, pretty bare. Okay. I think, yeah, just building off of what Cam said there, um, I usually also carry a spare derailleur hanger um, or two, depending on how chunky the route might be. I always mean to carry one of those, but I never do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they can get you out of trouble. Um, a shift cable is always a good idea. Spare brake cable if you're on mechanical brakes. Yep. Um, extra sealant things like that and then co2 i don't ever bring co2 um i've you know i used to carry co2 and i've fumbled a can and then just had nothing there and felt pretty foolish so i after that moment that was was me last week i I suck at using those things i'm terrible like i I think somebody needs to run a course on how to use the (laughs) co2 canister properly yeah my pump never runs out of air (laughs) um but uh, I also carry a full-size um, multi-tool that has pliers on it. I find that that's, and that doesn't even live in my... Like a Leatherman or yeah, Gerber exactly. or something? Yeah, um, I carry a Leatherman Charge, um, one of their, just their full-size tools. And that, my set of Allen keys and my Dyna plug live uh, in my feed bags and top tube bag. And then the rest of the kit is, um, is in, a, in a bag strapped to the bike. Um, and I find that most bike tours, if all goes well, I don't even have to open my my toolkit. It's just those those few things okay. that are um, that are accessible on the bike, and then spare spare brake pads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I carry I I have carried spare brake pads, but like on a longer tour, never short ones. But I was telling Cam today, I don't really brake that much. I just go down as fast as I can, and if I have to brake where there's a corner, okay, I'll put my brakes on. But that's my limitation. So I've done fifteen thousand kilometers on a set of brake pads. They're still going. <laughs> For now. That's a good <laughs> For now. Maybe I should pick up an extra set before I leave. <laughs> first aid. Um, in terms of oh, first... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, in terms of first aid, uh, I would say the biggest thing you can do is uh, put some knowledge up there, um, take a course, um, practice those skills, be comfortable with those skills, because if you're practicing those things time and time again, um, you'll develop what some people refer to as training scars, and when the situation happens, 
you just go. You just know what you need to do. It becomes automatic and almost instinctual. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say, yeah, knowledge is the biggest thing, the best thing, and the lightest thing you can put in your first aid kit. Um, <laughs> How important is it to be able to run away from a bear faster than your friend can? Well, that's the thing. You don't have to be the fastest. You just shouldn't be the slowest. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of things do you carry in your first aid kit? Like, I mean, I carry a really minimalistic one. It's got some swabs. Um, I have a piece of pencil with duct tape wrapped around it. That's, that's my emergency tape. Um, a little bit of medical tape, aspirin, <laughs> ibuprofen. That's yeah, again, it. it's going to be different. Like if I'm going out and doing like the cannonball, which is a 300 kilometer route in the like Dundas Hamilton area. Um, if I'm going to go do that, my first aid kit is frankly quite bare. It's some ibuprofen, some Tylenol, duct tape, bandages. That's, about it uh, because I know that I'm not in really any situation where if something ha- bad happens, I'm, I'm not gonna try and stitch myself back together. Not that you should ever do that. Um, I'm gonna call for help. But if I'm in Northern Ontario uh, where right. rescue could be in excess of a day out, I'm gonna carry a lot bigger first aid kit. Um, and if I'm riding with other people, I'm gonna consider those things I'm, I'm thinking about um, different medications, um, antibiotics, anti-nausea medications, um, more band-aids. Thinking, thinking about like dealing with sort of allergies, trauma. Um, you know, those are those, those are the two big things that come to mind. Fatigue. Um, yeah, a lot of. And then, and then again, having that knowledge of like what can you improvise in the bush. Um, if you have that knowledge of what you can improvise, you don't have to bring a manufactured product. Like if you know that you can create a not half bad splint, you don't have to carry a portable splint. Just carry a machete to make the splint. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, there's that full size multi-tool. There you go. First aid kit and tool kit. Um, All right. Thanks for that. What about safety um, in terms of like bells, lights, reflectors, things like that? Do you, do you guys use them or is it kind of like, no, we're off the, we're off the grid. We don't need all that. Yeah, bells are bells and lights are fantastic. I don't really have reflectors on my bikes, but uh, front and rear lights always. Um, more and more, I'm incorporating dynamos into new bike builds, and I just leave my lights on all day so that people people can see them. Um, and a bell, even when you're out in the bush, it's really nice to be able to ding your bell. It's a lot less. Uh, I think it's a lot less abrasive, uh, especially when we're coming across other recreationists who are maybe hiking or on horseback. Um, to just go ding ding um, and let them know that you're you're coming instead of either saying nothing and ripping past them which i think is about the worst thing you can do or like hollering at them and that can that can rub some people the wrong way okay uh yeah so we have both been upgrading to um k-light systems for our dynamo that's something i've been they're amazing to do they're my favorite option and i waited a long time to be able to afford that um we have a customer that runs dynamo lights on his off-road overlanding bike. Um, he was thanked recently when he was riding up uh, near where you are in like the Ottawa Valley area mm-hmm. on uh, ATV trail. There was other ATVers that were churning up a lot of dust and he had dynamo lights going in the broad daylight and he was thanked because those ATVers could see him coming through clouds of dust. Oh, wow. Okay. It's something I had never considered yeah. being a safety thing for that reason. We 
generally will run rear flashing lights all times of the day, especially if you're having to ride on the high the, the highway um, for however brief an amount of time that is. But also, you know, there's just so many reasons why like that extra battery or having dynamos as an option, it's like, it's a no brainer. It's yeah. not costing you anything. It's a safety thing. And most of us are picking routes that take us away from cars, but there's so many other factors. And, and it's probably good, a good point. I, I don't leave my lights on on the front when I'm not, it's not nighttime, but maybe it's not a bad idea, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually use a uh, couple times, some of the longer routes. The um, light up vest there, I forget what brand I have, but anyways, it's, it's just a vest. It's got like little plastic pieces that the light shows through and it blinks in different colors. It lasts for like 25 hours, 30 hours. Great. And as soon as it's nighttime, I flick that on, especially if you're on gravel roads, because I know when I was younger and I lived around areas with gravel roads, man, I used to drive like 120 kilometers down those things an hour and just flying and not my, you know, it's nighttime, could be dangerous. So Yeah, and on the note of that, like riding with headphones, you can't hear that person mm-hmm. until it's too late. And if they can't see you, then you're both not prepared for that situation. So generally, unless you're like completely alone on a rail trail and even then riding with headphones is something that I don't generally recommend. Yeah. All right. So in a long roundabout way, we've kind of built up our bike, got our gear. We're safe. We have first aid kits and repair kits. And um, so now we're out for a ride. And obviously we would go ride my route, the Canadian Shield bike packing route in Gatineau, because um, that makes sense. Now, what would you... Th- What's, what are your thoughts on sustaining energy levels throughout the day? Like what are some, um, with regards to hydration and nutrition and pace and stuff like that? Generally the rule of thumb is eat before you're hungry, drink before you're thirsty. Yeah. And and, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say everyone feels so differently and, and <laughs> Glenn and Theo were on a trip and I think Glenn is better than, better than one to share that story. Yeah. I was just about to say, no, no, Cameron, tell us his story. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even there. Um, yeah, everyone feels so differently. And when Theo and I went up to Thunder Bay, I took care of a lot of the food packing, uh, and I planned based on how much I eat. And you know, maybe I, I can go a long distance on very little food because in my regular life, I'm very good at neglecting to feed myself. Um, secret little skills for bike touring, uh, but. Uh, Theo was cranky a fair bit. Um, I love him to bits, but he was, you, you could see his energy level fading through the day. And you know, when I would, when I would drop him up a climb, I would go, uh, uh, uh-uh, that's not how this is supposed to go. He's, he's supposed to be the one dropping me up the climb. Um, so he would, he would be good sort of breakfast, lunch, I'd have a solid, we'd have a solid hour out of him. And then you could see that that energy level would fade and he didn't want to burn through all of his snacks. And we finished the tour and I was like, all right, how were things? He's like, I was hungry the whole time. Um, so I felt bad. So when you, if you are doing the food planning, talk to your, talk to your tour mates and, and ask them how they feel. How much do they eat? Do they, and, and for yourself, know that about yourself. How much do you need? That's a good point. And what can you eat? You know, I, I really prefer to eat uh, real food on, on bike camping trips um, and, and even long, long bike rides. I like to leave the space food for the astronauts. Um, but uh, some people can only do that. Like I rode a lot with somebody up in Thunder Bay who could, couldn't handle any regular food. Like he would, uh, it would come right back up. So he was only gels whenever we would ride. Oh yeah. And Ooh. that's just, that won't work for me. Yeah. They won't sit for long on me. Like, no. Yeah. Cameron. Yeah. I like to vary it. Um, 
bobo spars are really good. They're uh, basically a really dense slice of cake. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I can't eat Cliff bars, but I know a lot of people really, really rely on that, and they're widely available. Yeah, I did, and now I don't. Now, like my your body will change too. So, like what might work for one year or one month, all of a sudden your body's gonna be like, I've had enough of that, and I'm gonna. It's like a bad liquor night of a certain type of alcohol where you like two years before you could drink that again. I feel it's like same thing. So right now, Cliff bars are on my. That's not, your fireball. No, I don't want nice. them, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think That's my tequila. <laughs> I think Theo and I had about 60, 60 or so Lara bars, maybe uh, maybe a little more, uh, between the two of us on that Northern Ontario trip, and like we could not look at them by the end. Like <laughs> he was retching if he had to open a blueberry one, but I hadn't, I hadn't gotten to that point yet. So I was like, man, take my apple pie one. Like it's good. I'll, I'll do the blueberry one. <laughs> <laughs> Start bartering your food. Yeah. I think I read like typically like they say a bottle an hour. I don't drink a bottle an hour or very rarely do. I have to be some wicked hot outside um, and be hours and hours into a ride before I'm doing a bottle an hour. But I think that's a it's the rule of thumb, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you said real food over junk food. I'm more of a junk food guy, or a couple like the the Tim Hortons farmers wraps in my back pockets. Those things last hours. I don't know what they're made of, but they don't go bad. <laughs> so. Tell me, you bike camp in Eastern <laughs> Ontario. <laughs> the bears you ride faster. The bears smell it. They're after you. you know. Yeah. No, a mix of uh, both of what you guys both like. I, definitely appreciate the real food and we'll often plan okay we're gonna go to that tim hortons midday or after we've woken up and it's a 20 kilometer yeah. ride you give yourself these carrots to work through the day because you can look forward to that burger oh that burger is gonna taste so good mm -hmm. so mixing it up and knowing that you have things to look forward to that's something that we're you know planning tours yeah. around for clients things to look forward to yeah it's gonna be a big motivator yeah another big one for me is like like we talked about energy gels and so not quite right but like maple syrup has now become such a popular thing to buy little gel packs of yep although they're very expensive for what you get um i've done maple syrup for a long time and like first time i oh maybe a few years ago i was in british columbia and i was at this like french pancake house from quebec guy and as i was leaving he's like you want the maple syrup in your water i'm like okay and he just poured it in there and my bottles were full of it and holy crap man that was good like i was good for hours and hours um, oh, yeah. it's just a really really good mix um so you can buy like little bottles of maple syrup and carry it with you and just and for real do yourself a favor um those like uh, manufactured ones are great um but after buying a few of those and realizing how much i was spending on something that's already in my fridge um i just started filling little little squeezy bottles you can get filling it with maple syrup putting some sea salt in there, maybe a little powdered ginger, mix it up. Yeah. And that's the same thing uh, at a fraction of the cost. I made 15 liters not. of maple syrup this year at home, so uh, I'm, I'm set. <laughs> <laughs> I drink a lot of it. Every coffee, it's, uh, I spoil myself. Um, let's talk about pace, pacing. I mean, it's way different on a road bike than it is when you're bikepacking. And same with mountain biking, you know, you're, you're not going to push the same levels. So what is something to consider how would you guys put that out there um so i think that pace is so dependent on the route your gear where you're at in terms of your own physicality um i generally set an expectation that's much lower so if i think that i could probably hold 20 kilometers all day but i set my expectation and my timelines around 15 
That's that accounts for those hills. That accounts for that extra break I needed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is like, if I'm hard on myself because I'm not meeting the goal that was based on my like perceived distance. Yeah, yeah. My confident, I know I can do 25. So 20 is probably good, but I set it lower and it's like, Oh, I finished early at five o'clock. Great. Awesome. Oh, I, I like can that. go to camp and enjoy it. But the amount of times I've underestimated how long the day takes, especially when you're touring with other people, I roll into camp at dark almost every time. And like, that's also nice. I, I don't hate that. But you're like cooking and setting up in the dark and what is camping yeah exactly (laughs) um so pace is so dependent and like if you're with a group like you also have to be nice to your touring partners you want to be friends at the end Mm -hmm. of the weekend so um setting your your you know threshold lower is probably better for everyone and expectations anything you want to add to that or is it yeah i think um like cam said Taking it easy, going slower, knowing that you're you're pushing a loaded bike packing bike, um, so you're you're not gonna you're gonna be working harder and going slower. So don't beat yourself up over that, um, and adjust your timelines, like he said, um, and then and then play to your strengths. I hear from a lot of um, top bike packing racers. They'll 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 admit they'll say I'm not fast, but I'm extremely stubborn. Um, yeah. So people know like you know I'm not faster than the the top seed in this race so i'm just going to get up two hours earlier ride they're going to pass me and then they're going to set up camp and i'm going to ride past their yeah. camp and ride another two three hours into the night like if you know that you have that endurance play to that don't try and don't try and play on somebody else's field yeah i'm 42 so i'm not going to be as fast as younger guys like theo and stuff but i can go a lot i feel like i probably can go longer with less sleep I have a kid now, so I'm training at home. She's five months old. Dad Dad power. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I, I typically use a, my my thoughts are you should be able to carry a conversation while you're riding, that that's the pace you should set. If you're pushing so hard that you can't have a conversation, unless it's a big climb, um, you're probably going too fast. That's a good threshold, yeah, for sure. And without using a heart rate monitor, like... Yeah, otherwise, okay, heart rate monitor, keep it under 130 or 120-ish is good. like zones are relative to everyone, right? So, like, zone two is, like, your conversational pace, I'm pretty sure. I like to stay in the conversational zone. Also makes the tour better when you talk to the people you're going camping with. Yeah, Unless you don't like them. Then you can go into, like, zone three and four. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What about resting throughout the day? Not Mm -hmm. my forte, but... Anybody? I think it's great. Um, I'll often, on a really, really long day, I'll often take a nap midday. Um, and I know some of my friends who have done big, big tours, um, like like the Tour Divide, when they got into those southern sections where it's where it's blazing hot during the day, uh, they were they adjusted their whole sleeping and, and pacing schedule. So they were sleeping through the hottest portion of the day, and then riding in those um, sort of riding in the evening through the night and yeah. into the morning. So I think resting, resting during the day and, and making use of, of those better times to ride is a great idea. Yeah, I know Steve O'Shaughnessy, who's host of My Back 40 podcast, he did a yo-yo of the BC Epic last year. And he's like, my game plan was four hours sleep every night. But as soon as it was 45 degrees outside in the daytime, he's like, it became like ride all night, try to sleep in the hottest part of the day, which sucked, then feel like shit for the rest of the time and try to keep going. So it's, you know, um, depends what you're trying to do, I guess. Um, yeah, so bigger rest during the day. Take some time. Take it easy. Listen to your body. Like, if you have to stop 20 times over 200 kilometers, that doesn't mean that you didn't ride 200 kilometers well. Right. 
So listen to your body. Like Glenn and I did the butter tart uh, 700 two years ago now. And our first day, because we actually started at four o'clock in the morning for other reasons, just kind of what our schedule was. On allowed. the day of the Grand Depart? Or? Yeah. yeah. It wasn't the Grand Depart because it was the pandemic. Oh, yeah, right. So we ended up having a midday nap around kilometer like 100. Oh, right before that single track. It's a great spot. Yeah. So we had a nice nap for like an hour. And like, I've never done that before or yeah. since, but like, it was great. And yeah. I recommend it. Yeah, I was in um, Cambodia. Um, I was teaching in Cambodia for a bit, and I was cycling with actually the first person who was ever on this podcast, Adam Hugo, and we were cycling down towards Kampot. And it was hot. It's Cambodia, right? So midday, we saw this gas station. They had hammocks out in front of it, and we just pulled up, parked up, jumped in a hammock each, not sharing. Um, and we both crashed for like an hour and a half, and we woke up. We're like, oh, man time is it i guess should we get some water and food and like go ride our bikes <laughs> it was so good it's not something i do often yeah, but yeah it, it was it can it was be hard big. to get back on the bike after the nap yeah and i think another good thing to 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 let people know is like don't feel like you're in a rush when you're backpacking unless you're racing it's different completely but um and even if you're racing take the time to to change out of wet socks and things like that because you're going to be going for a long time theoretically and if you want to successfully go for a long time you know you want to have fresh feet or chamois butter or or to take time to wash a chamois in a river and let it dry on your bike while you're riding so you can have fresh clothes and things like that don't don't neglect your body for an extra you know in lieu of a, a five minute stop yeah be nice to yourself like you, you really can only guarantee that you will be nice to yourself so just just do that the take, world won't be <laughs> take the time be nice to yourself on a bike tour all right so towards the end of the day it's time to camp boys um, really, there's three possibilities. And I think we touched on it. Camping, hotels, and hosting, right? Um, have you guys ever done trips where you're hosted? Like warm showers or couch surfing? Or Yes. Um, we were hosted by one of Glenn's uh, childhood friends and his parents when we rolled through uh, Thornbury, Ontario on the oh, yeah. BT-700. Yeah, we went a little ways off the route and, and just... Uh, pulled into their into into their place and they had made us like fantastic oh. barbecue dinner oh, yeah. and all these there was a campfire that campfire we didn't, that have, we to didn't have to make and they had <laughs> like we it was still like peak of the pandemic so we weren't sleeping in their place but they had they had set up like big back uh, not backpacking like car camping tents for us so we could like spread out and we each had our own tent it was amazing nice um, yeah premium premium host. what's your what's your typical like do you hammock, tent, bivy? What's your what's your go-to? Um, I've gone through four or five tents and deciding that I didn't like them after trying them. Oh yeah. Um, I've now got a Six Moon Designs Lunar Solo. I think it's for the money one of the best tents, and it's I think sub three hundred bucks uh, Canadian or just about three hundred Canadian. Rock and Cyclery does sell that. Um, but I've also used a tarp and Glenn put me onto that. Like just a tarp? Yep. Just yeah. a tarp staked out at the bottom end where my feet are. And then I just tuck myself in and I have my sleeping bag underneath that and a ground sheet. And I've dealt with bugs, but also like in your shoulder seasons, there's no bugs. So oh, okay. if it's not raining, it's definitely fine. And even if it is raining, you're probably going to be fine. 
Um, so I really like tarps now and I have a quite a small one, but Glenn has a extremely big luxurious one. And that sounds like it's the way to go if it's going to rain or you're on a long tour. Um, so if you're not having to deal with bugs yeah. crawling on the ground or in the air, I think tarps are like one thing that people don't talk about enough. Yeah. I a great I, option. I talked to somebody recently and they, they, with their tent, they always have a tarp and they said, you know how nice it is to pack up your tent in the morning and not have it covered in dew. And just pack it away and then you can just shake out this tarp and throw it in the next pouch or whatever you know like something i never even considered i was like oh i don't want that extra kit but it's not that heavy and no i like how small and compact bike touring gear has become that my seven foot by nine foot tarp is extremely big <laughs> yes uh, that's the other thing is like if you have your tent plus your tarp and it's raining and you're stuck in your tent all day if you're able to go and cook underneath another thing, like you can mm-hmm. get out of that tent and you're still dry potentially. Yeah, or you I've, might cooked, not I've cooked meals in my tent. It's not fun. No, yeah. doesn't sound fun to me. Yeah, I think, yeah, when, when bugs or considerable rain um, or even on, on extended tours, I like, to, I like to have a tent. I find that that's, um, it becomes a nice sort of space. Um, you feel a little bit removed from the outdoors and I think that that does a lot for your for your longevity in the outdoors and your mental health and your sanity when you can just sort of remove yourself just for a brief moment especially in black fly season um, just to have a little a little quiet space um, but yeah in shoulder seasons are where I'm not as worried about uh, bugs I really enjoy uh, tarp camping or just cowboy camping um, and just Locking my so just a ground sheet under the stars. Ground sheet, my sleeping bag under the stars. Um, I used a bivy when I was in Arizona. I borrowed I borrowed Theo's bivy, um, and it was it was pretty good. But yeah, I haven't found that a bivy does great for me with a okay. down sleeping bag and things just end up getting wet. Yeah, just the moisture builds up. Or? Yeah, condensation yeah. inside, and you know that's to be expected. But I found like you know if it's not going to rain, I'm just going to sleep out and if i think it might rain i'll just set up a tarp and that for me does effectively the same thing as a bit in about the same amount of pack size yeah interesting and um so you mentioned sleeping bags so you're like a sleeping bag type person not quilts or have you experimented with quilts or um i've i've used quite a few different sleep systems i can't really say that i have one that's my ultimate preference it's all gonna be i'm quite Quite privileged to be able to to have multiple different pieces of gear and, and a bit of my own library to to choose from um but i would say largely if i had to choose one thing and i couldn't use any other style it would probably be a sleeping bag okay cameron um i bought a uh, quilt and you i did, really huh? like it yeah which one i have a thermarest quilt i think it's like a zero degree okay. it's in the middle of the range yeah. so just because it's less material it is lighter um I'm interested in buying a proper sleeping bag, um, but for everything in like the primary time I get to go bike touring in Ontario, it's perfect. And I generally do pair it with um, one of the best camping products, in my opinion, uh, the SOL uh, breathable bivy. So it's basically the, like- the emergency light or whatever it's called. Yeah. That's what I use for, yeah, racing. Yeah, I used it for racing my first year doing the BT, and then I've just kept it because it's 40 bucks, Mm -hmm. and it provides a barrier basically in place of a ground sheet, or if you were to get rained on, it's probably better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And then that 
kind of gives me some security, but I really need to be able to put my feet out. That's how I regulate temperature in the night oh, okay. every night. So I was picking Glenn's brain and I'm interested in a Western mountaineering bag that I can unzip at the bottom and put my feet out of. Mm. But um, I've been really happy with the quilt and I always bring a pillow. Oh, okay. Yeah. Pillow is a nice one. I, I don't do it and I always regret it every single time. So it's, it's on my, my purchase list. Um, I use a sleeping bag. It's a mobile from Japan and 800 down. So it's quite light and pack compact. I think it's 500 grams, 550 grams. And I've wanted to go to the quilts, but I'm not really saving much weight. And I don't think, and it's just not worth the effort for me at the moment. Like spend the money for, for what? Um, yeah. So might get there sometime or pairing them together, but um let's uh so I, I know glenn he probably carries an air mattress and a foam pad and uh self-inflating mattress on top of that and triple stacked right no well when it's minus 45 <laughs> out yes <laughs> see anyway <laughs> but uh no just a just a regular air mattress uh for for most stuff all right um so yeah i'm kind of getting towards the end um i think other some other points that are important when just to just to say them uh when you're camping is to to keep your food away from your tent especially in bear country um it's not really something to discuss because it's it's just a fact Mm -hmm. um respect private property yes i mean i've camped on farmers fields and stuff and i think that's okay but i I wouldn't go camp in somebody's front yard unless i knock on the door and ask them first yeah, I like the idea of um, the leave no trace, I think is a really important aspect of being in other people's land, mm-hmm. um, whether it's indigenous land that you need to know your place on or someone's private property. Um, yeah. Cause I've definitely done the farmer's field things, <laughs> slept in between rows of corn. Um, oh, I haven't or, gone that far. Yeah, um, public parks, I've slept near the edge mm-hmm. away from like a playground, but you know, I hear people walking their dogs in the morning and that's my cue. I need to get, get up, up and get out. Yeah. But if you're not bothering anyone and people see you've got like this nice bike, we also, I'm a white male. I'm privileged to not be very threatening to a lot of people. Yeah. So I try to check myself and recognizing that I have that privilege, but um, yeah, generally just like never, you should just leave no trace. It's a very yeah. simple principle. And I think it's the important. worry for us is a lot different than for, you know, as a white person it's definitely something we don't acknowledge enough and i've talked to a few people and interviews or listen to other podcasts and it's something that i'm always like wow i I never even considered that because it's not something i've ever had to to really worry about yeah Yeah, especially in ontario um another good point is i have written down here is reserve campsites in advance so if you're planning like the bt 700 or something and there's campsites along the way maybe do what you do and consider your mileage or distance and shorten it by 20% and plan for your stops so you can book places. And if you're looking for that comfort, then ensure yourself a place to stay because you might be out of luck otherwise. Yeah. Campfires are really nice. Yeah, absolutely. It would be great to see. I think it's a bit of an issue in Southern Ontario is a lot of um, campgrounds are, are sort of RV parks and a lot of them either will not cater to tent campers uh, or have two night minimum stays um, and I, I, I know I've paid for a two night stay before knowing that I'm only staying one night because I just I needed to stay there because it's all private land around mm-hmm. it. But that that uh, wasn't a great feeling to have to pay double what I felt was already an inflated price for a patch of dirt. Um, so if we could see more sort of 
uh, one night stays. Like in the U.S., they have yeah. they have the biking or whatever it's called. If you ride into the campsite, it's like ten bucks a night or something, or fifteen bucks. It's yeah, that'd super be great. cheap. Yeah, Canada kind of Ontario especially is it's really expensive. BC's great. They have all the forest road campsites; they're all free. Sweet. Um, what's the best thing about camping? In your estimation, well, like, what is the absolute best thing that makes it all for you? Really, all of it. I don't know. I didn't grow up camping, and once you learn how to do it well for whatever works best for you, I think it's something that I equate to like being really important for my mental health. Mm. Being able to sleep outside. Um, Glenn and I both talked about it, and I don't think you can quite put your finger on it. And I think there's a lot of people. It doesn't make any sense to. To, yeah. to those people and I was talking to somebody recently um, that went on their first camping trip and they come from a different cultural background than I do and I was like what did you think they went up and spent a few days in Killarney and her partner um, pretty seasoned camper and she's like I don't really enjoy that and I was like even just the sleeping outside part she's like it's the first time I've ever done it and she comes from a background where her family members would have you know had to overcome incredible circumstances to be able to be in Canada and she's like it's almost hilarious that I would choose to do that when my father experienced all of these crazy things mm. and to a lot of cultures it's ridiculous to go yeah. camping and my wife's Persian some of her friends think I'm absolutely nuts they're like <laughs> why would you even ride a bike to Quebec City and back when you could just drive you know I'm like well you know it's we've just- come so far <laughs> we can just get in a car yeah <laughs> Um, all right, I think we can move on. Um, any tips, tricks, lessons you've learned that you want to share before we kind of wrap things up? I've got a great one. Go for it. So Glenn mentioned the idea of being nice to yourself. Uh, bring baby wipes. Take a hobo <laughs> shower so at the end of your day. Wipe down the areas that contact your saddle. That is an incredibly important aspect of maintaining that area properly and not getting saddle sores. Saddle sores will take down the strongest cyclist. And that is just a bacteria that gets aggravated over and over and over and over all day. So if you don't keep on top of that hygiene, your trip's done. Yeah. 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 And there's lots of, um, you know, pseudo cream like they use for babies. It's great. It's, it'll help you, you know, and there's, I think there's some others. I heard a podcast today and they were talking, I, f- I forget what it is, but um, a cream specially made for saddle sores at nighttime, you know? And oh, really? Like I want to know about that. Tasty thing. I think I opened it on my tab as I was driving, not that I should do that. And I saved it as a uh, tab. So yeah, I'll check I it out. I want to know about that. Yeah, I think one of the, I don't know if it's a tip or not, but it's like, be nice, say hi. Um, remember whether you like it or not, we're all, um, ambassadors for this sport or activity, however you want to look at it. Um, so yeah, be kind to people, say hi, stop and chat to people on the trail. Um, you never know what you're going to find out. I've found some of my best camping spots by just stopping and talking to somebody who was hiking. And yeah. Like, oh yeah. I camped over, over here. And this is an amazing spot that I wasn't planning on staying at because I didn't live there. I don't know what's around. Um, and then, just yeah, chatting with uh, with folks, and it doesn't have to be recreation. It can be you're chatting with somebody who owns a restaurant, and suddenly they're like, "Oh, cool! There's a lot of people riding through my town. I'm gonna have a special for them, or they can sleep behind the restaurant." 
yeah. um, in my parking lot, whatever. I've had a lot of amazing, it's one of the things I will stop for, like unless I'm racing, obviously. Uh, but even then I've stopped to have conversations just cause it's, it's so needed just for your soul, like to, to engage with somebody sometimes, just even for a few minutes. But um, the rail trail in Chelsea, I often, if I see somebody walking their dog, I'll stop and talk to them and pet the dog. And it's just like, it just feels good. And then you walk right away feeling better. And, um, and you know, like, that's how I interact with people in my community. And I try to do that elsewhere too. If I'm in Southern Ontario riding, you know, if I see somebody, I'll, if, I'll say hi, if they talk back, then I'll maybe stop and beat them up. No, uh, have a conversation, you know? Um, yeah, any other tips, things, considerations? Um, yeah, I think uh, a general tip with, with bike camping is don't think you're gonna be perfect. Um, go like even if you don't have all the right gear or everything and you don't look like so and so on instagram who's going bike camping like just go do it go do it imperfectly and then come back reflect on it and go do it again and keep yeah. doing it imperfectly um and just keep on doing it because you're going to get better and better every single time you're going to learn things about yourself about how you like doing this and then you're going to be the one who's sitting here telling other people how they should go on their first bike tour yeah, so I want to preface by saying this isn't a panel of experts. It's a panel of people that talk and think about this a lot. And are passionate about it. Yeah. And are very passionate. Yeah. I talk to people at Brockton. They are buying their first bike for bike touring. They're looking at bags. There's so many options, and it's almost, you know, this overwhelming number of options. And I often will stress... I've been on many bike tours. My setup has changed every single time. There's been almost, I can't, yeah, every single time there's been some tweak or maybe I brought this and I didn't bring that last time or the bags are different. I've bought my bags three times over and everything about my bike has changed. I, I'm my fourth touring bike now. Okay. So I go back to the drawing board and try new things every year. So don't think you're gonna nail it mm -hmm. with your first setup either. So that's why I suggested borrowing and, and yeah, and, and if not like, like decathlon sells super cheap bags that work perfectly well. They might not be as waterproof, but a little bit of a dry bag or inside there is not going to weigh you down that much. And uh, if you can't borrow bags, don't steal. Um, <laughs> borrow a bag or go to decathlon or just buy some cheap stuff or get on like Facebook Marketplace. Somebody's probably yeah. selling something cheap. Um, or pull out your mom's sewing machine and yeah. make some bags. You've made some bags, right? Yeah. I was going to this winter, uh, this spring, I didn't do it. I, I'm planning to make some stuff this winter. Just just try. Why not? What's the harm, right? Um, but I think, like, really, my my tip would be try not to spend... If you, if you spend so much that it would physically and financially ruin you if something happened to that bike and stuff that you couldn't walk away after and be like, okay, I can do it again... Um, it's probably too much for you. So try to stick within the means of you can afford in that sense, at least for your first bike or first bags and stuff. I know I say I'm in a bike shop saying this that sells some beautiful, beautiful bikes, but at the same time, like be sensible to yourself. Um, you can find stuff used, you can find stuff affordable. And as you develop that passion, then by all means invest more. You know, I told my wife, I, my, my, my gravel bike, it's probably worth somewhere around five grand and I said well I've done about 20,000 kilometers on it so really it's only 
about 25 cents a kilometer. So at the moment, it's getting cheaper and cheaper by the day. And so think about how much you're going to ride it and, and then find the, the balance and how much you're spending on it. Yeah, I think that's, that's actually something that Cam said to me when I was building my first bike, uh, bike camping bike. You know, I was, I was new to working in a bike shop. And I was like, oh, I can I get discounts now and I can buy all of these fancy parts and I'm going to buy the top end derailleur. And he was like, you know what part you're going to smash off of a rock and not going to be able to replace in one paycheck? Your shiny new derailleur. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. hmm. And so I bought the workhorse of the line, just very average product. Is this your the bike you were talking about earlier? On the, my Krampus. The Krampus. Um, and it has lasted the last five years, no complaints. And when I do eventually break it, I'm not going to be upset about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, you got to find something that's in the right, the right balance. Any final thoughts, Cameron? Yeah, ride the bike that you have. I mean, we sell a $1,000 hybrid. It is more than enough to go on your first bike tour. If you did want to spend money on something with disc brakes and was new and doesn't have any problems. But like I said, I rode a 91 Haro and it was the bike that I had. I bought bags that were going to fit on that bike or any bike I might own in the future, which was the logic. And yeah, I did have to spend a decent amount of money, but it wasn't on the bike and, uh, don't overthink it. Just get out Mm -hmm. and also run the biggest tires that fit in that bike. That Uh, is the best advice. Always run the biggest tires you can. Mechanic stuff. Yeah. Run big tires, listen to a podcast or two, watch a couple YouTube videos, but then go do it. Don't, don't trap yourself in a internet hole of watching videos because you're going to get conflicting opinions and then you're just going to get paralyzed by choice. Mm-hmm. Just go do it. Awesome. And so before we go, I think if there's any questions that have come up over internet, uh, Instagram, internet, the internet. Um, and our lovely guests. If anybody has questions or guests have questions, yeah, come on. I, I think she's, there you go. So my question is more with reference to like mechanical issues that can happen uh, when you're touring. You know, uh, Cam and Glenn, you both have like extensive knowledge of the mechanics of a bike, the intricacies and the anatomy of a bike, and I have less knowledge. And so I guess my question is, what are the basic mechanical uh, concepts that a new bike camper should know uh, so that they can take care of themselves if something goes wrong on the trail? Great question. Thank you, Nancy. (laughs) Yeah, I would say, um, I mean, changing a flat tire, that's probably the the number one problem you're going to have on on a bike tour. Um, That's like, if you're going to learn one skill, change a flat tire. Um, And I think like being able to adjust your brakes and tweak your drivetrain, those are good skills to build. Uh, to build on but not something you want to learn in the field um, yeah and hopefully you're going through a town where some you can stop at a shop and have somebody check it for you like yeah, if you don't know yeah. what you're doing and so yeah have have good knowledge of of do do your research of your route and know where there are bike shops on and just off the route in case you need to get to one um, but then i would say yeah if you if you're inclined to learn about how your bike works uh, talk to your friends who work in the bike industry or ride bikes a lot, um, generally they're gonna be happy to go over your bike with you and and show you things. Um, And then also just take your bike apart when you're at home um, and put it back together, learn how things work, adjust things, make notes of what the, like you changed something, what happened, make a note 
and, and learn how that works. It's, it can be a very daunting thing, mm-hmm. um, but there's really no shortcut to bike maintenance other than just learning about it and doing it. And the best case is, is if that's to your learning style, is, is person to person um, and working with your friends, but also I know like Park Tool and SRAM and Shimano all have really good YouTube videos uh, where they will show you um, how things work. And I know even six years working in a shop, I still occasionally have to pull up a YouTube video and just remind myself of, okay, how does this work? Um, because I would rather just watch that video for two minutes than turn a bolt that I shouldn't have and spend another $300. Yeah, I think that um, building confidence from the most basic things like changing flat, I think that's exactly the best place to start. Um, and I'm more than happy to take a customer and do a one-on-one. I did that recently with a customer that bought his first geared bike um, and his first bike packing bike. So there was lots of new aspects of that bike to him and he was able to finally get the bike during all this pandemic shortage. Uh, I think it was maybe a week, two weeks, a month most before he left for Turkey and riding through the mountains of Turkey. That's amazing. Amazing. And like the trip that he went on, I haven't heard about it in person yet, but it sounds like it was amazing. And the route he was able to ride was perfect, but there's a lot of things that would be in the back of your mind on a new bike. I don't know how to change a cable. So we went through, okay, the scenario that we're recreating is he's been his derailleur. Let's talk about the limit screws. Let's talk about what you would do in the scenario that you've broken your derailleur or the shifter doesn't work anymore. So we worked through all of these different this step, then this step, then this step, and this is how you're gonna go through this this is what you're risking if you're going to try and bend your derailleur hanger back. Um, and we worked through all of the different scenarios so that we'd explored the worst case scenario. He was riding a new bike that was well-maintained and worked in and s- set up well. But he was also arriving on an airplane. So we went through all of the things that he's going to have to reinstall his handlebars, make sure that the headset goes back in the right order. Mm. That's something that Again, like I had been working in shops for years and I had to put it in wrong and then try to ride away once after a long bus ride. And I was like, oh, that doesn't feel right. Um, so we went through everything about reassembly off of, out of a box and off of a plane. Um, and those are things that you're flustered, you've been traveling. If you've done it once and it's not your first time doing it in the field or in an airport, that's gonna be a much better experience. Yeah. I think if I took my bike completely apart, I would have spare parts left over and I'd be like, oh my God, (laughs) what am I doing? Um, I think like learning, like, I mean, I'm always learning too. Like I I tried to use the CO2 cartridge last week and I was like, can't be that complicated. Never used one. Sure enough, I messed it up and there I was, my little tiny pump, pumping it up and it sucked. And finally I got enough air into it that I finally found somebody's house and asked them if they could fill it up properly. Problem solved. But um yeah, just baby steps. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, come on up. Okay. Yeah, thanks for the talk. I found it like really informative. Uh, just a quick question, two questions actually about like bikepacking in southern Ontario. Um, you touched a little bit on like wild camping, but what do you look for in like a wild camping spot? And then also, do you carry a lock with you? 
Oh, that's a great two questions. Great questions. Great, awesome questions. So, um, for locks, I'll start with that. I don't carry a traditional U-lock that I would use to secure my bike if I'm leaving it out of sight. Um, I carry a product by Hiplock. That's what I use. Um, they make basically like, it's a steel cord zip tie. Um, I don't use that, but I think that that product makes a That's lot of sense. That's what I use, it's about the yay long. Yep. Yep. Um, they're like $20. Very good investment, weighs nothing. There's a retractable cable uh, lock that I think is 40 or $50. And it's a combination, again, it weighs almost nothing. And that's what I'll use to like tie the top tube to like at a gas station, the, the, the cage that carries all the, the propane so that somebody can't walk away with my bike, but I'm still like running back and checking on it every like 15 seconds because to Chris's point, like if, you if, lost somebody it, lost, if I lost <laughs> my bike, I would be devastated. It's not something I could replace anytime soon. Yeah. Um, so if I were in another country that I was very unfamiliar with and I was on a long form tour, I'd probably carry my U-lock. But I would also, in some, this is a great story actually, I had a very hilarious mechanical uh, last or two years ago. I ripped my pants. And all of a sudden, anybody that was watching me ride away could see the inside of my leg and my underwear. So what do you do in that situation? Uh, you call your mom and laugh about it first. I don't have needle and thread, so I'm not repairing this. I went to a value village and I bought a pair of pants for $5, but I didn't even have that cable U-lock and I was in a place I had never been. So I just said to the manager, I know this is the weirdest question you're gonna get all day. I need to bring this bike in. I'm gonna buy a $5 or $10 pair of pants. I will be out in five minutes. Can you please just let me bring my bike in and put it right beside the carts? I will be in and out, I promise. And they let me do that. So if you ask nicely and you look like you've ridden a very far distance to get where you are and it looks like it's going to make or break that moment for you, most people are going to be pretty nice. If you're sweaty and smelly and... <laughs> yeah. Start crying. crying. Nobody wants to see an adult cry. Yeah, your last, your last step is just to cry. <laughs> and what's your first question? It was camping, right? Uh, like about wild camping. Yeah, that's a better yeah. question for Glenn. Um, and even just touching on touching on locks, there are other things that I'll do because I'm I carry a similar product. It's called an auto lock. It's kind of like a, a slightly bigger version of that cable tie, um, just a steel steel a flexible piece of steel uh, inside of a rubber casing. And it's a little combination lock. Something that's good for a quick stop, but I wouldn't trust it overnight. Um, is I'll do things that make my bike hard to ride away with. Like I'll take the chain off of the chain ring so that, that that's a little harder. I'll dry shift it or I'll weave my helmet through the spokes so that, yeah, even if you do cut my lock, it's at least going to be kind of annoying and you might sit there putzing with my bike for a minute before you can properly ride. And hopefully with somebody it. will interact or you'll come out in time. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, in terms of, um, I think, the, the term wild camping, often I use stealth camping in Southern Ontario because it's all, all private land. Yeah. Um, so I'm not admitting to having slept outside on places I shouldn't have. Um, but generally what I'm looking for is um, secluded areas. Rarely in Southern Ontario am I worried about four-legged animals. It's usually two-legged animals that I'm nervous about. 
Um, so getting getting a little ways out outside of the city, um, looking f- sort of for areas that if I'm if I'm on a path, knowing like okay, how far can you see into the bush, and then go a little further because when you wake up in the morning, you're going to realize that what you thought was like this perfect spot hidden away, you're like oh I'm 15 feet from the trail. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm looking for secluded areas and. Um, and generally going a little further into the bush than I think I need to. Um, but with that, like, I'm also speaking as a man who isn't, isn't really that afraid to sleep outside. I think that there's, depending on who you are, there's different things to consider. Um, so on other bike tours where I've been sleeping in, in places where I can't find a forest to sleep in, um, and I'm really uncomfortable sleeping in that city, I'll go sleep under a light somewhere. Um, we slept, uh, Cam and I slept in a picnic shelter because Cam wasn't feeling that great that day and mm-hmm. um, we were sort of bordering on what might be considered a first aid situation. So, you know, I didn't want to have to deal with that in the dark in a forest. So we slept in a public park under a picnic shelter where we were in the light all night. And, and I people felt, from their porches for like 30 houses surrounding us could see us. And I felt safer there because, you know, I was at least illuminated. Didn't have a great sleep <laughs> because the lights were on, but. Yeah, sleeping in places where like, okay, the owner of that land isn't like a one individual. Maybe it's like a library or behind a gas station. That's a common place because you're right next to something that might open in the morning if you needed water or food. Um, that's like a strategic decision that you would make. Uh, sleeping in like playgrounds. I've slept in a playground many times actually. It's kind of been a joke because you know, there's a little shelter. You can like sleep underneath the whole thing right on like wood chips or something. And and the sandy areas are like a beach. It's just, yeah, there comfy. you go. Um, yeah, and I think the last thing on that too is like, it's also way different for, for guys than it is yeah. for girls and, and how you advertise things as well. I, I spoke recently to a, a woman who is a musician, her, her musical name is Ostella, Liz Pomeroy, and she's doing a cross-Canada tour to promote her, her new album, which is really cool. And I said, so what's your route? She's like, oh, well, I'm gonna, wait, just, uh, I talked to some people and they said, maybe I shouldn't just share that out loud. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a good point. I never considered that, you know? You might not want everybody knowing that you're riding all alone across country and this is your route. Um, by all means, share with your family, friends for safety, do check-ins, but you know, maybe publicizing your roots and your adventures beforehand is different as a female than a man because we have different risks associated with that. Yeah, that was one thing that my friend who was, was pretty big into hitchhiking would always say is when we would get picked up uh, and somebody asked, where are you going? He would usually say the next town or sort of one or two towns over a shorter drive so that he had time to sort of suss that person out figure out if he wanted to stay in this car for a long time. And then when they got there, you'd be like, actually, I'm going a little further. Or he had a sort of easy way out. That's a good um, idea. If he wasn't feeling super comfortable. All right, any other questions? Any come up on the Instagram or? I haven't seen any. I haven't seen any, okay. So I think we're good. That's a, that's a solid two hours almost, hour 45. How do you guys feel? Happy? Feeling great. Good? Good. Time for a drink? All right, if there's no other questions, I guess that is it. Thank you guys for for coming and for all those that are watching or will listen in the future. Thanks for sitting in with this episode with uh, Brockton Cyclery or the crew from Brockton Cyclery.
Thanks for coming, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having yeah. us. It's a short drive. <laughs> All right. I want to thank Glenn and Cameron once again for being on the Bike Tour Adventures podcast and particularly Cameron. He put a lot of work into to preparing for this, um, creating a little bit of social buzz, inviting people into the shop to, to partake and sit there and, and uh, you know, um, listen in person. And also invited Alex of the North Side Polo podcast, uh, a friend of his in Toronto who runs a podcast on bike polo. And Alex is a camera dude, a cinematographer, videographer. I'm not sure what the right word is, but he does that for a living. So he came and brought his camera and set up and, and had everything set up for the Instagram live that was shared on Brockton Cyclery. And so, yeah, you can check that out. And they're also going to do some post-processing for that. Now, I just want, so big thanks, big shout out to Alex for, for coming out, giving us his time and being there. If you don't know much about bike polo, kind of like me, um, take a look at their podcast. It, they're like 42 episodes in, and it seems like there's a lot to talk about and a lot to learn. And they also host um, little events where you can, you know, have a taste at it and they'll lend you a bike and you can try it and see what it's like. And uh, who knows, maybe it's uh, just one more experience on a bike and you might love it. So not a bad idea to give it a shot. So anyways, once again, thank you to... Alex Farrell's help. Thank you to Glenn and Cameron for for being on the panel. And uh, thank you to Brockton Cyclery for having us and allowing us to do this. And for, of course, sponsoring me throughout this uh, this season 2022. And lastly, I do apologize for any audio. You know, there's a bit of an echo throughout a part of the podcast, especially at the start uh, until we got the audio dialed in. I know Glenn's microphone was a little quiet because he was a little bit further away from it. And once we got that sorted out, it really improved things. So I do apologize for any audio, you know, not being up to my standard or my typical standard of audio. But uh, when you're in a live situation like that with multiple microphones, it's a way, way different uh, process. And I'm still learning when it comes to that. So hope you enjoyed. I wish you guys all a fantastic week and keep on peddling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me to keep going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have comments or questions, you can email me at chris at biketouradventures.com or go to the website biketouradventures.com and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, and the Touring Tips page. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you're enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bike tour adventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, helping me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and continue to produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, 
blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling. <laughs>